On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we have uh, the great good fortune to talk with John Bodenhammer, who, of course, is the chief championships officer of the USGA. Uh, John is um, uh, plays a large role at the USGA and has um, quite a number of responsibilities on his plate, um, including overseeing all aspects of the USGA's 15 championships, both inside and outside the ropes, the five international competitions, which you know include the Walker and Curtis Cups, qualifying um, for these events, future site selection, course setup. Um, it's really quite a list of responsibilities. So we talked with John first about uh, his journey in the game, growing up in the Northwest, where he had a stellar junior career, uh, went on to uh, play college golf and graduate from BYU. Uh, and after a couple of years on Senator Hatch's Judiciary Committee staff, he went back to the Northwest and got um, into golf administration, uh, spending 20 plus years as executive director of Pacific Northwest Golf Association and Washington State Golf Association before. Um, in 2011, joining the USGA. Uh, so we talk in depth about his experiences at the USGA, the pillars of the USGA's championship strategy, uh, and how that um, informs course setup and site selection and the overall conduct of those championships. And then generally talk about the challenges and opportunities facing the game uh, including the distance issue, which we talk about at length. And uh, I will note that we had this conversation on the morning of Friday, December 1st. And uh, late that afternoon, word started um, leaking out into social media that the USGA would be coming out with its revised proposal um, this coming week. Uh, it is Sunday evening here on the West Coast as we're posting this. So we don't yet know exactly what that proposal is going to be, but um, uh, obviously a very timely discussion that John was willing to have about the distance issue. Um, And just overall, I really appreciate um, John's uh, uh, willingness to cover uh, such a wide variety of topics. And um, he's really, I think you'll agree as you listen to this, quite a compelling speaker. Um, And it was really great fun talking with him about all of this. So up next on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, John Bodenhammer. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I am so pleased and honored today to have with us John Bodenhammer, who is Chief Championships Officer at the USGA um, and has had and continues to have, you know, a stellar career in in golf administration at the highest levels. John, thank you so much for making time today to speak with us. Larry, it's my honor. I appreciate what you do for the game and uh, appreciate your, uh, your having me on. Thank you. Sure. So just to sort of maybe wind the clock back a little bit and give people a little context for how, you got started in this great game. I know you're from the Pacific Northwest, from Lakewood, south of Tacoma in Washington State. Um, maybe tell folks kind of how and when you were first introduced to the game and what hooked you on this great game. Well, thank you for that, Larry. Uh, it uh, I come from a, a bit of a humble background. I, uh, I did grow up, uh, if people know where Chambers Bay is, those were my stomping grounds. Um, Lakewood, but really the the Stillicum area, 
on Puget Sound. And uh, my father uh, introduced me to the game as, oh, I, I'd say at about nine or 10 years old, just, just hitting a few shots. He was a left-handed player and uh, I was not. So that was interesting. But um, I really took off in my love for the game uh, when I was 12 years old and uh, went out to a little place that really doesn't exist much anymore. It's still there, but it's gone a bit fallow. Fort Stillicum Golf Course, little nine-hole municipal course that Pierce County in Washington State runs. And um, I, uh, like a lot of young boys uh, in those days, it was a great place to grow up. And we'd go round and round it in the summer months, uh, you know, four or five, six times a day, play 54, 63, 72 holes wow. in a day from uh, from sunrise to, uh, to sunset. But I think the thing that really got me going was it gave me the opportunity as a 13-year-old as a to have my first job. I slung a rubber hose around my neck and swept the dew off the greens for the men's wow. club at Little Fort wow. Silicon Golf Course on Saturdays and Sundays, and then I could play all I wanted uh, throughout the year. It was, a, it was a great gig. Plus, when I turned 15, I was able to drive the Cushman around without a driver's license, so ah. Cushman, uh, a little Cushman vehicle. And when you're 15, that was 14, 15, that was a pretty big deal. So it was a fun place to grow up. I bet. Uh, and so you obviously had a lot of ability. I know you had an impressive record as a junior player, won the Washington State Junior Championship in 78, Pacific Northwest Golf Association Junior Amateur Championship, played on the high school team. The one thing that caught my eye that I have to ask you about um, as you're in on high school is this course record 55 that you <laughs> shot. I mean, I, I remember, John, being a kid and looking up you know, in the Guinness Book of Records, the lowest round, I always think of Homero Blancas shooting the 55 at the University of Houston. Um, but um, and I know that was in a tournament, but still, there's another 55 out there and you own it. Um, talk to me about that, because it sounds like you had a bogey and it was down for that was must have been some round. Yeah, it was a little. It was a little for Silicon Golf Course where I grew up. I was 16 years old. Was playing with a with a friend of mine. It was kind of a uh, practice day for Lakes High School, and it it pretty much got rained out. But we decided to go play, and yeah, I'm glad we did. Um, <laughs> it, it was uh, you know all of us uh, as teenagers would chase this course record of 59 that a guy by the name of Gary House, a two time Tacoma City Amateur champ, and a guy that could bomb the ball had it at this little golf course. And uh, at the turn, I shot 29, never done that before, and decided to keep going in a downpour with a guy by the name of Steve Leonard, and um, shot 26 on the back, had a bogey wow. on the front, shoot 29, 26 on the back, wow. I think I had three eagles and, and uh, you know, nine birdies or, or eight birdies and, uh, and a bogey, and uh, it was quite memorable. And, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, Larry, a couple of lessons out of that little golf course many yeah. years ago. That have carried forth with me. One was just that being able to shoot 55. Look, it was a you know 45, 4800 yard golf course, par 68. Uh, but the ability to do that and learn how to shoot low numbers right. was really something that helped me later in life. Sure, I was able to get the ball in the hole. I was more of a finesse player. I managed my game well, and I could get the ball in the hole. And that little golf course along with others along the way, taught me how to get the ball in the hole. And I think there's a lot of benefit to that as a young player. Totally. Learning how to go low and not being afraid of it. And I never was. And I shot a lot of low scores when I competed a lot, uh, a lot of years ago. The other thing that I'll never forget at Little Fort Silicon Golf Course, 
were the people. It was a, um, it was just such a, a a wonderful blend of all different backgrounds from this Scottish old gentleman, Tom Manclark, who drove a red Impala convertible and had the traditions of the game to, to uh, uh, African-American Aileen Cunningham, who was a four handicap and had eight kids and found wow. time to play golf. Wow. And then a guy by the name of Tommy Cornell, who was born with short arms. Oh, wow. And played left-handed and played with a little device under his arm. It, it, to me, everybody was just a golfer. Yeah. And they were all welcome and we all had fun together. It didn't matter the background you came from. If you loved the game, you could play. And I, you know, and I think that's fueled me uh, ever since. Um, and uh, I'm proud of that. And I look back on that and what a great education that was in life. Totally. I, uh, well said, I, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, I noticed that a little bit, you know, I do a lot of the course rating work with Doug Sullivan, who I know, you know, you know, out very, here, very well. you know, and, and, you know, most of the courses we go to the vast majority, they're public courses and it's where real people play real golf. And, and it's kind of, and I get a real, a, a lot of fun out of it. Um, and you know how big an area we cover here. So, um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of courses and it's great. So um, kind of just moving forward a little bit in the timeline. So, Obviously, I picked off some of the championships, and I know you won when you were 19, the Washington State Amateur, which is a notable thing. Not surprisingly, you're being recruited. Um, and, you know, you and I are around the same age. And I remember, you know, the University of Houston being such a dominant program under Coach Dave Williams. And that was, you know, speaking very well of what your game was, that was one of the ones that was recruiting you. Um, but you made a stop at BYU uh, on the way, and um, that's where you ended up deciding to go. So just sort of curious. I mean, obviously, you had lots of great choices. Um, what made you decide to go to BYU? It was an interesting journey. Um, I, I uh, was very fortunate. I had some really great people around me growing up that helped me uh, with my game, and, and I did have some success as a junior, won the state junior in 1978, the Pacific Northwest Junior also went on and won what was the Pacific Coast Junior, uh, the Eddie Hogan Cup that Tiger played in years later. And oh, wow. Played well in the Junior Americas Cup and got to know a lot of go college golf coaches. They saw me play. I finished second in the Junior Americas Cup, played on the team wow. with Rick Clare, former, uh, yeah. future tour winner, good yeah. buddy of mine. Um, but it was really, uh, you know, it, it was something that um, I always admired uh, the University of Houston their record. They were the Yankees of college golf. They and tore. I, exactly. Did, it, it, exactly a, it, it, the way that I looked at it. And, but I had a very good friend that I played a little bit of junior golf with growing up. Uh, a guy by the name of Freddie Couples. Um, <laughs> that, uh, we played in the uh, British Columbia Junior one year, 1978, in July of 1978. He won it. I played with him the final round, happened to play quite well. And Fred went back to his coach at Houston, Dave Williams, and said, hey, you got to recruit this kid up in the Northwest. Wow. Play. wow. That's where it started. And I knew some other people at Houston, Chris Mitchell from, from uh, the Spokane area and so on. So one thing led to another. And, and um, I did get recruited by a number of other schools, uh, Texas, Arkansas, University of Washington, Oregon, and, and visited most of those. But um, it was really the visit to Brigham Young University. And it really started when I played in the Orange Bowl Junior Invitational in Miami. And a college golf coach that had became a mentor to me, Carl Tucker, member of the Golf Coaches Hall of Fame, wonderful guy, uh, Coach Johnny Miller and Mike Reed. Mm -hmm. and, 
and Mike, Mike Weir and, and many, many others. Um, just a wonderful guy, wonderful recruiter, wonderful mentor. And he saw me play. And I don't know what it was. I guess it was just meant for me to go to BYU because every shot I hit, I just striped it in front of Carl. <laughs> and uh, he invited me to come for a visit. And uh, the rest was history. I spent a weekend with Bobby Clampett, the number one ranked amateur yeah. in the country at that time. Yeah. And a guy who became a very good friend of mine also was Bobby's roommate, a guy by the name of Dick Zokel, who would go on PGA Tour, 22-year career. I uh, still stay in touch with Dick um, as well, who uh, both encouraged me to come to BYU. Dick was a Vancouver, British Columbia guy, Bobby, a Northern Cal guy. And uh, it was a beautiful campus. And to me, Larry... I had always been around people that told me, okay, you're going to play college golf. You've had some success, but you better get your degree. Right. And BYU was a place where I felt good about if I could, if I could obtain a degree from Brigham Young University, uh, it was really going to be something that would help me in the future. And I did. And I'm proud of that. Yeah. And it was something that the program stressed, you know, you needed to keep your grades up and it was a great tradition. Uh, we won a national championship in 1981. Yeah, right. Johnny Miller lived in Utah at the time and played with us. Billy Casper, Mike Reed, wow. all those guys. It was really a great wow. experience, and I'm glad I did it. That's awesome. And I have to say, I hadn't seen Dick Zokel's name for a long time. And, of course, when I see it, I have to call him Disco Dick Zokel. Yeah, uh, right. Because what I always remember is, you know, him putting the Walkman in when he played in Milwaukee and listening to the music and I think it was Larry Rinker who he was playing with, who you know, coined co the name. Um, and he did. He was an All-American. It was a great team. And it was interesting. I think Bobby left after 80 to turn pro. So he was gone, right, for the 81 team. And yet you still managed to win the championship, which is impressive. Yeah, there were there were some great guys on the team. Uh, and, you know, it was interesting because Bobby did leave. It was like he was like a he was like a superstar playing amongst amongst um you know, kids, uh, he would win college events by 10, 12, 15 shots. Right, and it was right. time for him to move on. And a lot of people don't remember how good he was. Uh, oh, golf yeah, he was. And all of that. Bobby could really play. And he uh, sure could. stories, you know, he won once on tour, but he just had no fear. He could get the ball in the hole and just still a dear friend of mine. But it really allowed, I think, the others on the team like Dick Zokel, guys like Keith Clearwater, Barry Willardson, others, Rick Fair to really Rick Fair, right. Yeah. And come into their own. Dick became the leader of that team and won the national championship at Stanford in 1981. And and it really was uh, monumental. Um, it, it, it was uh, something to behold. Awesome. Um, one thing for you, which is we sort of leave college and um, I want to talk to you about um, your experience in D.C. But I mean, you're obviously really gifted. Um and I know you subsequently won some Alaska State Opens. I mean, did you ever consider sort of trying to make it as a player, or or what was that thought process like? Because you're obviously at a, your your national championship team, you're playing at a super high level. Just curious if that what that thought process may have been like for you, if you if you had it. I did. I think like a lot of young um, young boys, young girls growing up, you know, you. Uh, you have dreams, uh, follow those dreams as a golfer. Uh, they inspired me. You know, I, I tell the story when I was a young boy playing home, our family home, you know, when I was 14, 15, 16, was behind the third green of, of a golf, another golf club I grew up at, a place called Oak Brook Golf and Country Club in, in mm -hmm. Lakewood. I'd clean the cards and pick the range and I'd play home each night. And uh, on that third green, I'd have a putt. Um, in the evening as the shadows were getting longer and the sun was going down, it was always to win one thing. 
every single night, no exception. Yeah. It was always to win the U.S. Open. Sure. But to do what I do today, is it's quite an honor. And I look back on those days. But that inspired me. And, you know, and I think that's the way we think about all of our championships at the USGA today, inspirational. And that's what that was. I always wanted to uh, to to play on tour. That was my dream. And, and I never quite got there. I did turn professional for two and a half years. I made it to the second stage of tour school. Won a couple of state opens, Alaska opens. I uh, get a lot of a lot of needling about that. <laughs> it was great. It was a great experience. And, yeah, I bet. Um, played some great golf courses up there, and it was really a, a fun time. And and uh, I think, but the thing, Larry, that I think changed me is is two things. I I had gotten a bit of a late start in trying to play uh, professionally. Uh, I always wanted to do it. Uh, and I had had some health issues in college. I, I uh, was diagnosed in my sophomore year with Hodgkin's disease. Oh, and wow. Leave, uh, okay. and, and came back a year later after winning the state amateur and played a year at BYU. And then uh, they thought I had a relapse and had to go oh, back. Boy. So I had to sit out two different years. So I got a bit of wow. a late start. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was, you know, in those days, it was more of an annoyance to me. I wanted to just play golf. Sure. I didn't really mess with these health issues. And I think about how tough it was with my parents. But, you know, there again, I'm grateful for that opportunity to have gone through a little bit of hardship there. It's made me a yeah. better person, brought me closer to my family. But it did give me a later start. And so that combined with, you know, I'll tell you just to sum it up, I yeah. played with a lot of guys that could hit a two iron with a high draw and have it land on a putting green like a butterfly with sore feet. I never yeah. had that shot. Um, and, uh, I knew that, yeah, maybe I'd get out there and, and, and do okay, but I would never be dominant. And I felt like making a career change in a different direction when given the opportunity to go back to the U S Senate was something I needed to do. I totally can understand that. And, um, uh, and, and that makes all the, all the sense in the world. Um, the, um, I, before we get into the golf administration, if I have to talk about your experience or ask you about with the great Senator Orrin Hatch, who, um, you know, I, I, seven terms, I think I'm six, seven terms, one of the longest serving U.S. senators. You know, um, I always had a lot of admiration for him. He was someone who would reach across the aisle. Of course, his relationship with Teddy Kennedy was famous and stuff. But you're there. In the Judiciary Committee, uh, where uh, as part of his staff for a couple of years in the late 80s, what was that like? It was an amazing experience. And uh, again, I'm blessed to have had it. And Senator Hatch was a very uh, decent man who loved uh, our country and yeah. um, loved the state of Utah and really was one of those individuals that always would look to do the right thing. Uh, for the country, something bigger than himself. And I admired yeah. that. And yeah. I had uh, gotten to know some people around Senator Hatch when I was at BYU and did an internship for him on his campaign in 1982 in, in uh, Utah County. Uh, worked for someone who went on to be part of his staff later, and uh, I'll come back to that. But uh, it, it really was a joy. It was really, I was in... Um, San Diego playing the mini tours one year. I, I'm trying to think it was 1988, I think. And, um, you know, spinning my wheels, make a little bit of money and, and, and playing okay. But, and I'm hitting balls on the range at night under the lights. And this guy walks over and says, uh, are you John Bodenhammer? And I said, well, yeah, matter of fact, I am, but who the heck are you? How do you know me? I, you know, I was nobody. Um, and no, you know, particularly from a, 
playing standpoint, I, I yeah, I'd won a couple of Alaska Opens, but outside of Alaska, nobody knew that. <laughs> and uh, he walked up and and he introduced himself, and it had been a guy that I had um, done some work for during my internship at BYU for Senator Hatch. And he said, uh, you know, if you'd ever want to come back and and interview, and you know, we'd we'd love to we'd love to see you. Wow. Um, back in Washington D.C. and I, you know, I thought about it, and I took him up on the offer a few few months later. Um, Carl Tucker, my coach at BYU, knew, knew Senator Hatch and put in a good word for me, and one thing led to another. And yes, I uh, had the great privilege of serving on Senator Hatch's Judiciary Committee. Politics and history have been a passion; they continue to be a passion for me. And so to be on a committee with people like not only Senator Hatch, but think about this, Larry, Joe Biden was yeah. the chairman of the committee. Right. Ted Kennedy was on the committee. John right. McCain, Chuck Grassley, who's yeah. uh, chaired and is still on the committee. Strom Thurmond, the oldest yeah. member uh, in Congress. Hal Heflin, great civil rights champion. Dennis right. Hickey, Paul Simon with the bow tie. I mean, I yeah. learned so much working with those individuals and their staff, especially, let me tell you one story that happened. Sure, daily. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sitting in my office, the Judiciary Committee office, and um, a uh, handsome uh, young a- African American guy walked in and uh, was looking for one of the attorneys in our office. And I said, "Well, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Morell's not here. Can I take a message?" He said. Sure. Uh, let him know Goody Marshall from Kennedy's office stopped in and can you have him call me? And I said, absolutely. So uh, when uh, K. Morell came back, uh, I uh, said that he I gave him the message from Goody Morell. And he said, do you, John, do you know who that was? And I said, well, it was Goody Morell from Kennedy's staff. He said, no, that was Thurgood Marshall Jr.'s son. Wow. Uh, you know, the Supreme Court justice's son who was on Kennedy's staff. Wow. You know, those, Larry, those were the experiences that I just reveled in. And you would get to know people that um, you just wouldn't in 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 other walks of life. You just, you know, you touch history yes. in ways that you could never do it in any other way. I It was fascinating to me. My job was in his Judiciary Committee office was to respond to uh, constituents, write, re- write letters back to them, meet with them take up projects that were meaningful to them. And, and it was it was amazing. It was an amazing committee, crime issues, gun control, the Americans sure. with Disabilities Act, which Senator Hatch was a champion of. Right. Abortion. A few months after I left, uh, the committee took up the Clarence Thomas, Anita Hill. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it was just all kinds of those things happening constantly. And I had ambitions or I, I had intentions of going to law school. I had signed up to take the law school admissions test. If you're not an attorney in Washington, D.C., you don't get very far. <laughs> That's true. Uh, the Judiciary <laughs> Committee staff. But uh, that was my plan. But uh, like many things in life, it changed a short time later. Well, so let's talk about that, because I'm I'm listening to you and watch this and saying, OK, you're in your late 20s. You're in a great position there. You know, most people doesn't take much to catch Potomac fever uh, <laughs> and end up sort of staying there. And yet you end up getting convinced to come back to your the Northwest um, and start, you know, your career in golf administration with, um, you know, the uh, Pacific Northwest Golf Association and then, you know, subsequently the Washington State Golf Association. But talk to me about that. You're, you're as you said, you know, you're kind of on a path there. You're in a great spot, super exciting. 
Um, what made you um, kind of uh, come back to the Northwest and shift back into golf? Yeah, it's amazing. You know, you look back in life, Larry, and you think about people that, and I alluded to it earlier, who help you along the way, help you along your journey. And I've, I've just been so blessed by so many that have. I had no intention of returning to the Pacific Northwest, at least not for some time. Again, I was going to go to law school, become an attorney. Right. I wanted to stay on Capitol Hill. It was a passion for me. I loved it. I loved being in the hearings. I loved working for Senator Hatch, sitting in staff meetings with him every Monday. I mean, it was just something that I really enjoyed. In the late winter of 1989, I had a very good friend of mine um, who had founded the Washington Junior Golf Association, a woman by the name of Joanne Teets. Uh, her daughter was a very good player, played at New Mexico and, and um was a very state amateur champion and and uh, she called me and the Pacific Northwest Golf Association was searching for a new executive director. Now this is about October November of 89. I said thank you Joanne but I'm not interested. She called me two more times. I said no two more times. Wow. And finally Larry in uh, November uh, of 1989, really just to get her off my back <laughs> and her, <laughs> her persistence, uh, she's a dear friend. I loved her, um, you know, like a like a like a parent. And um, I submitted a resume and um, got an interview in uh, right before the holidays, and then a second interview, and and then a job offer, and I had to make a decision. And, and it really gave me an opportunity, Larry, I, I really had no intentions, but as I looked into the position and saw what it was, uh, it really became of great interest to me. I had grown up with the Pacific Northwest Golf Association, um, won, the won their junior, mm -hmm. got to the finals of their amateur, and knew the great history that the organization had had. And it just seemed, you know, sometimes in your life, you look at that crossroads, that that why in the road, and you say, okay, I've got to make a choice. And I sought some people that I trusted, uh, their advice I always have in my life. And um, it just was a decision that I made that brought me back home, closer to my parents and back into golf. And I'll never regret it because those were great days, great organizations. I became the executive director of the PNGA and the first week on the job, I didn't know it. They didn't tell me this in the interview, <laughs> but I was in a meeting with representatives, leadership of the Washington State Golf Association. Um, and uh, they informed me that uh, they were going to effectively merge and I was going to be the executive director of both. It's not what I had signed up for, <laughs> but I welcomed it. I had also known the Washington State Golf Association because I had won the state amateur and I knew the individuals right. involved. Right. You know, it was just good for the game. The two organizations came together. It, it, it eliminated um, some friction uh, and it really brought everybody together. And we were able to do some great things in the Northwest together collaboratively. We administered that staff, both organizations from our office. It was very efficient. And I look at that model and 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 what we're doing now at the USJ with our Allied Golf Association. Right, right. And, and they're coming together much like we did in those days. And um, I'm really proud of that. And I think it was one of the great things that happened because the right people were involved and cared about the game more than what uh, was their own agenda. Absolutely. And um, and you had quite a run um, with on those perches for 20 plus years um until the usga um 
That's quite a run. I, I, I'm just sort of curious as you look back on it, and we'll get to the USG in a second, but just kind of as you look back on it, what do you kind of view as your, I'm going to have a two-part question, I guess, your most significant accomplishments and kind of, I'd also be curious um, how that 20 plus year run prepared you for your subsequent roles at the USGA. Well, thank you for that question. It's a great joy for me to talk about those years. It's where I met my wife, Pam. We, we had our two children, John and Megan. I made uh, so many wonderful friendships. You know, golf is so wonderful because it brings good people together and it is such a close community. And, uh, you know, I think over those years, I look back at that all that was achieved and, th and there was much, not, not because of me, but because of others that really thought bigger. And I think that's the one thing that I brought. I've never been afraid to think big and dream big, no matter what it was. And uh, really um, thought of things that maybe others thought were impossible to do. Uh, we sought them you know, new cha new championships, bringing two organizations together, new championships, elevating women's championships. Uh, we changed the culture. When I started, we had less than 50 volunteers uh, throughout the Northwest region. When I left, we had over 400. I'm proud wow. of that. Wow. Uh, at, at, at most every club. And, and um, really, people wanted to be a part of what we did. And, you know, we, we started a, a magazine in 1994, and magazines lost money in those days. Nobody... Right. Nobody, uh, nobody made money. Well, we did. We started a golf show that we later sold for a big, uh, significant profit and, wow. and helped uh, promote the game in the Northwest that way. Uh, we took the Pacific Coast Amateur Championship on board in our, uh, along with the PNJ and the WSJ. And uh, we conducted, uh, I had the privilege of leading that for 14 years. And it really was where, along with um, our championships at the PNJ and the WSJ, the state amateurs and the regional amateurs, it's really where I got to um, find interest. I had it as a player, but I, as an administrator, setting up a golf course and the strategy of setting up a golf course, whether it was for the best players in the region or the state or the best players uh, nationally with the Pacific Coast Amateur uh, or senior players or, or female players or junior players. I took great interest in that. It was a passion for me and I, and I loved every bit of it. And I think it was uh, something that, um, you know, over the years, I I, uh, I look back and I, I think about how much I benefited from those days and some of the mistakes that I was allowed to make uh, <laughs> with greens being too firm or whole locations. Yeah. So, being sometimes you learn the most from mistakes in life. You do. So. <laughs> you do. And, and many, many USJ qualifyings. But it really it really was a joy. Championships have always been my passion. And, uh, you know, I think we elevated the sites we went to. And, you know, there's a theme here, I think, a little bit. But, yeah. <laughs> but it really was uh, something that I enjoyed, the championship side of it, everything within the Allied Golf Association community, but especially the people, my colleagues at other associations. Everybody was just interested in doing what was best for the game. And when you have that as your objective, great things can happen. Absolutely. And it is a great community. I mean, I've had the great fortune for a little over a year to be part of the SCGA board and, you know, and getting to know Kevin Heaney, you know, as he retired, I know you know him well and, and others. I mean, just all with that kind of mindset as you just outlined, which is great. And I, I love it. Um, so you're, you're, you know, chugging along, doing a great job doing this. You know, we're um, now sort of fast forward the clock to 2011 in June. 
um, your past 20 years in that role there in the Northwest. You're from the Northwest. Your wife's from the Northwest. You're there. You've got your kids. USGA, um, all the way across the country, northern New Jersey. Um, how does that kind of come about for you? And what was your thought process? Because you're moving a family and your whole life um, to you know, uh, all the way across the country. What was that whole process like for you and as you thought through it? Well, it didn't, it didn't happen overnight. I look back on that now and you don't really realize, you know, events that are unfolding as you go through them sometimes. But I think it goes back to as early as 2003 or four when I joined the USJ Amateur Status Committee uh, mm. by, by Tony Zerpoli at the time mm -hmm. who led the Amateur Status Capability and I'd always had a great interest in rules and amateur status and, and equipment and all of those things that pertain to championships. Again, championships were my passion. Right. And uh, got to know folks uh, on the amateur status committee, um, like Jim Heiler. Uh, yeah, oh, sure. Tom O'Toole, yeah. both with chairs. I got to know, um, I served on the Handicap Procedures Committee when Jim Vernon, uh, another yeah. USJ president. Another uh, SCGA and, guy, too. So another SCGA <laughs> guy, wonderful guy. He was one of our uh, trustees with the Pacific Coast Amateur for a few years. And I think along with the Pacific Coast Amateur, the USJ would come out and, and pay close attention to the championship because we conducted it for, for one primary reason was to identify players uh, for the Walker Cup and and mm -hmm. West Coast players, especially to showcase them so that they mm -hmm. could make the Walker Cup team because most of the competitions were in the East. Right. And so I really got to know a lot of the USJ guys like Jim and Tom and and uh, Jim Vernon and others, as well as Mike Davis and Tony Zerpoli and David Fay, and really became quite close with the USJ and really just wanted to support the USJ. And then um, in 2007, something happened that really changed that relationship. It was really something that the Pacific Northwest Golf Association and Washington State Golf Association did, and that was to acquire its own golf course. Ah, okay. The home course uh, from the Warehouser Company, uh, which yeah. was a significant undertaking. When I was hired in 1990, the organizations had a dream of owning and operating their own golf course okay. uh, for championships, uh, to diversify revenue, uh, to strategically help the game in many ways with caddy programs, junior programs, and so on. And, and that's all today happening at the home course. Um, but we, we acquired it. It was a competitive process. There was a retired Microsoft individual uh, that was uh, in competition for us and, and uh, or competition with us for the golf course. And uh, it was really an interesting process. And we won the bid. Wow. Um, I was very proud of a of a uh, document that I compiled with with help from others that really told the story of what we would do there and and yeah. uh, required the golf course in May of uh, 2007 and opened it uh, 29 days later and the rest is history. It's hosted wow. uh, four USJ National Championships. Wow! And uh, continues to generate significant revenues for. Uh, the PNG and, and what is now Washington Golf. But what changed about that, Larry, was when we acquired the home course, uh, the USGA, the same year we acquired it, announced that it would take the U.S. Amateur, the 2010 U.S. Amateur, to Chambers Bay. Mm. And a companion course, a co-host, was needed. And so uh, uh, I spoke to Mike Davis and, and others, Jim Heiler, Tom O'Toole. Jim Heiler was the chairman of the championship committee. They came out and visited. And again, they had many great golf courses in our area to choose from. 
but they chose the home course to be the uh, co-host and that meant a lot to us. And I, and even, I think through that journey, got to know uh, Jim and Tom and Mike and uh, David Fay and others at the USGA. And it, uh, it, it really was a great US amateur in 2010. Uh, Peter Uline uh, beat David Chung and Chambers Bay performed magnificently and and it was just really wonderful outcome and and a, and a, and, a, and a great undertaking and it was just a few months later that um it all uh, kind of changed again that fork in the road uh, happened I was sitting <laughs> in my office it was uh, March of 2011 a few months after the amateur and um the phone rang about 5.30. I was just sitting in my office uh, south of Seattle and uh, on the screen on my uh, caller ID, saw the name Mike Davis. <laughs> and he had just been appointed as uh, the USJ's executive director, uh, later to become CEO. And, you know, Larry, it's funny. Everything I believe in life happens for a reason. Sure. And I'll never forget it. I saw Mike Davis's name on the phone and I knew why he was calling. I just did. <laughs> And I, I can't explain that, but I just kind of sensed it. And sure enough, we had a great conversation. He uh, wanted me to join his senior leadership team. And in those days, it was Mike and 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 four others. Uh, it was a, it was a wonderful friend of mine to this day, Mike Butts, uh, along with Rand Jarris, uh, Sarah Hirschland would join later, and uh, I, I was the fourth. And Mike uh, wanted me to consider a position overseeing all of our uh, championships, as well as all of our rules functions, including our equipment standards program, which was a big job, and oh. be part of the effort to start golf back in the Olympic Games. Yeah, it was uh, something that um, it just you know it just seemed Larry at the time that uh, with with the conclusion of the U.S. Amateur and a few other things. I had achieved um, most of what I'd set out to do in 22 sure. years in Northwest, acquiring the home course and all of the other things that were just great joys for me. And uh, I had worked hard over the years to develop some people uh, that I worked with that could succeed me. Yeah. And it just seemed time for them to have that opportunity and for me to move on to a new challenge at the USGA. And, I, and a few weeks later, Mike had me back and visited and I accepted that position. And it's been a joy. It's been uh, truly the, the honor of a lifetime um, to be a part of the USJ during this time. I've learned so much. I've been blessed to be around so many talented people. And uh, it's just so exciting um, getting up every day and thinking about what I what I get to do next. Well, and in and, and that, and that regard, um, there's a lot on your plate. I look through what your responsibilities are. I know you, you just touched on when you came over there, you were you know, you had rules and, you know, besides competitions and amateur status. And I know, you know, Mike, I guess it was fall of 2018 when he handed over all the responsibility for the championships, including setup, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, but just, just generally, when I look at now where you sit as chief championships officer, I mean, just to give listeners a sense of this who may not be as familiar with the USGA. I mean, you guys have 15 national championships. You've got four opens, 11 amateurs. I think I counted five international competitions. You've got all the qualifying, which is enormous, you know, across the country. And obviously the AGAs help you for that. You've got all the future site selection stuff for all of these championships that we just ticked off. 
and you're on, you know, continue to be on the executive leadership team. I think it's probably five other colleagues now, um, but with, with Mike Juan, I mean, my gosh, I mean, get up every morning. I mean, it's like, that's a lot on one person's plate, right? <laughs> it is. And uh, it, it's, it's every bit of it has been a great joy and it has ebbed and flowed. And when Mike invited me in, yes, uh, my responsibilities were with all of our championships to oversee uh, both the opens and the embers, mostly inside the ropes, agronomics, rules of golf, um, golf course setup. Um, one exception, Mike uh, retained golf course setup for the U.S. Open, but I worked very closely with him as well as with Jeff Hall and Tom O'Toole and others that were involved in those days. But it was really a, a championship uh, and a governance, rules of golf, playing right, rules right. of equipment, amateur status that were in my purview. Um, and that evolved, you know, that um, it was championships and, 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 and governance. And when the world handicap system became an initiative, it became a part of governance. It was the playing rules, amateur status rules, equipment rules, and now the handicapping rules. Right. And I had, you know, with the Washington State Golf Association, now Washington Golf, I had been very close to uh, the USJ handicap system and sure. And uh, and and all that it entailed, and so I had I had a, a twenty plus year knowledge of working with it. So Mike gave that to me as well, and uh, I said, Mike, <laughs> my title doesn't fit on my card anymore. Senior <laughs> managing director, rules, competitions, equipment standards, amateur status, and now yeah. handicapping. Yeah, Mike, yeah. Get a bit ridiculous. We got to shorten it. Let's yeah. just call it uh, senior managing director of governance, and that's uh, championships and governance, and that's what it became. Uh, until 2018, when Mike handed off uh, the golf course setup uh, lead with the U.S. Open. Yes, right. And so, um, and I know you. I think you gave your friend Thomas Pagel the governance stuff. Um, and as as you moved into this new role, and um, I just have to ask you before we kind of get into more general stuff. So your first setup is the 2019 U.S. <laughs> Open at one of the real cathedrals of golf, Pebble Beach. Um, I I mean, that's got to be, I mean, if it was, it got to be a little intimidating. I mean, but um, obviously you handled it well. What was it like the first time? I know Mike was still around, but just sort of the first time setting it up. Um, I mean, you had studied with him, you had done all this stuff, but that being, particularly that course being your first U.S. Open, that's pretty cool. It was, you know, I, I like many, I had had a lifelong uh, affection for Pebble Beach and, and all that it means for our great game, the architecture, all the history that's been had there. You know, I, I have to say, and I, you mentioned Thomas Pagel and, and uh, it was, it was uh, when we went through a bit of reorganization, Mike knew before any of us out, uh, other on his, others on his team knew that he was going to be, uh, his career was going to be taking a turn in a few years. And it really was something I did not expect for him to hand over the course setup duties uh, for the U.S. Open fact for all of our championships and setting the strategy for those but Mike actually originally asked me to do that and also keep the governance responsibilities and I said Mike <laughs> that's a lot Mike come on now <laughs> that just uh it's time Thomas Thomas and I had been working closer together and Thomas Pagel had forgotten more about the rules and governance than, than I ever knew and uh, it was just time for Thomas 
to take it over. And uh, Mike, Mike knew that too. And we had a good conversation about it, but you know, you know, Larry, that's something I've always taken pride in. I've always had a lot of fun and taken a lot of fulfillment from really thinking of those that uh, I've had the privilege of working with and making sure that they're empowered for the future. I, I really Absolutely. mean that. And that goes on yeah. today. And there are some names there that you'll, you know, that are just wonderfully talented people. Um, and frankly, that's really all I do is work with great talented people and be and try to be smart enough to listen to what they tell me. But uh, in 2018, Mike, uh, Mike did hand that off. I knew Pebble Beach was ahead. And it was really pretty daunting because those days were were, uh, you know, they were a bit uh, challenging on a number of fronts. If you think back to 2018 and the, the few uh, few years ahead of that, think think back to. Chambers Bay, we had a great U.S. Open, great leaderboard, Jordan Spieth, exciting win. But uh, the putting greens were a bit of a controversy. Yeah, the, 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 right, with the POA and the fescue and everything. Yep. Yeah, it was, yeah, you know. the transition of yep. that. And, um, and and then 2016, we had the rules issue with uh, with Dustin Johnson, and there was right. quite the controversy there. And sure, sure. W- w- with what was otherwise a magnificent U.S. Open, 2017, you know, there were a lot of people that weren't overly excited about Aaron Hills because it was right. new. And right. some guy named Brooks Kepka sh- uh, uh, shot 16 under. And yeah, who the heck is this Brooks Kepka guy? Yeah, I know. Little did we know, right? US I know. I know. You know. Shooting 16 under, you're ruining the U.S. <laughs> Open. Well, they don't, they don't say, they don't ask who Brooks Kepka is anymore. They right? sure don't. They sure and, don't. <laughs> um, but it, it, at the time, it was a bit tumultuous. And then you sure. go to 2018 and and uh, Shinnecock Hills being Shinnecock Hills, uh, you know, the, the weather, the, you know, the, just just what happened there. Um, and we can talk about that as its own topic, but right. you know, it was controversial. And yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 it was what it was. And so 2019 was a very important yeah. year. Important year, right. You US wanted to Open. square it off, right, exactly. Yeah, and I think we all knew it. We, yeah. we knew we had to not only have a good U.S. Open, we had to have a great U.S. Open. Um, you know, and I I could talk about each of those years and and all well-intentioned, and especially at Shinnecock Hills. And, uh, but 19 was important at Pebble. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we, uh, we built a, a bit of a new strategy that looked a little more long-term, looked a little bit differently at golf course setup as maybe we had, still following what Mike had laid out um, in so many ways. Um, and I'll tell you what, Larry, nobody that I have ever been around uh, has ever exhibited more of a sixth sense about golf course setup than Mike Davis. I came to the USGA to work closely with Mike Davis. I'm proud of that. I learned more from Mike Davis in in setting up a golf course than anybody else. Mike had a unique talent of being able to really push a golf course to the edge and make it tough. Much like, much like Joe Dye did, much like PJ Boatwright did, yeah, yeah. Uh, much like Tom Meeks did and, and, yeah. and others. And that's been the USJ's DNA. You know, you go back in time and look at media accounts of the USJ and the pros in 1935, were going to boycott Oakmont because the greens were too right. fast at seven and a half or eight well, at Oakmont and- on the stint meter uh, that didn't exist at the time. But you know, that's, that's our history. But I think I think you know all we did was think about it a little bit differently and in, in setting things up and and taking what Mike had handed over and built a, a little bit of a different strategy that really you, you know um, really uh, put a spotlight on Pebble that we became proud of our, our team 
guys like Jeff Hall and Jason Gore, who was a new capability for us, you know, that had become a part of a part of what the USGA had built with our player relations capability that we had never had before 2019. Uh, and then Darren Bavard, our agronomist, that was our setup team along with me. And um, right. I think Jason's arrival was was pretty key too. you know, after some of that bumpiness with the U.S. Open through those few years, uh, I went to Mike uh after uh, in 2018 and said mike we really need to um build a stronger more consistent relationship with the players we need to have, we need to um we need to engage in a dialogue with them and really listen to their perspective and explain the decisions we make not just engage with them one week a year but all year long right we need a guy who can walk on the range immediately and have the credibility that can have those conversations and we sure found him in jason gore yeah Jason was respected. He had just this wonderful personality that uh, could give it out as much as he took it. And yeah, it yeah, yeah. And uh, he was the right guy at the right time. And we were grateful for him. But we'd never had that, Larry. And I went I went to Mike and Mike was, yep, go do it, John. And it was a really important hire. And I think it's really changed who we are uh, in so many ways. You know, we've built on that capability. Scott Langley is leading that now, along with Liz Fratkin. Uh, we don't have a men's capability and a women's capability. We have a player relations capability, and uh, they both lead it. And Scott is 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 um, is is the leader of much of that, and part of our setup team now. And uh, I'm really proud of that. Um, the whole player relations side of things, because you know, I I can remember being on the phone with a former U.S. Open champion, asking him about uh, certain guys that we might think about hiring and. You'd know this guy won the U.S. Open and many other events. And he said, John, you know what the USJ's biggest problem is? The biggest problem is the players think you don't care about what they think. Yeah. And nothing could be further, could have been further from the truth, Larry. But we never had that. You didn't have the dialogue. You didn't have the communication. Right. Exactly. And now... um, you know, it's it's it, it's on not just U.S. Open or or even distance or it's it's this whole cross section of engagements that we have, understanding what's important to players, what makes them tick, uh, what are the challenges that are going on in their careers or with their families or if they just had a baby or gotten married or 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 different things. We know the players more. We've created something called our player journey where we don't just wait until they get into the opens. We try to get to know them in our junior championships and in our amateur championships and the Walker cup and the Curtis cup, the U S juniors, the U S amateurs and the Walker and Curtis cup. By the time they get to the opens, we know them. We know their parents. We know their siblings. We know their college coaches. Today, we even know their agents as amateur golfers. Think about that. I right. still can't get we got, we got NIL deals to deal they with. Got right? NIL deals. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the point is we really get to know them, you know, and I think about a story around uh, Bryson DeChambeau that really um, exemplifies that. And the 2020 U.S. Open at Wingfoot, no fans. Right. Bryson's parents couldn't be there. And he's very close to his parents. And and uh, one of our partners, Cisco, uh, approached us and said, uh, can you get a hold of Bryson's parents? We can put a big uh, Cisco WebEx up the size of that wall over there, uh, uh, the clubhouse. And when Bryson walks out of the scoring area after signing his scorecard, we can have his parents right there to greet him and congratulate oh, wonderful. him. Wonderful, wonderful. 
that, that was on national television. You may may remember. Yeah, I remember. And yeah. It was a life moment for Bryson. And the only reason that we could do that is that uh, we had a member of our staff, Robbie Zaznick, who had Bryce, Bryson's mom's cell phone in his cell phone and, and called her 25 minutes before that moment because they'd gotten to know each other in the U.S. Amateur and at the Walker Cup. And we built that relationship. And that's what we try to cultivate early on and when they're younger with their college coaches. And so we know we know them better by the time they get to the Opens and they know us, they know what we're trying to achieve. And I think ultimately, Larry, if we can get more of the players helping us with our mission, then I think we, we will really be in a good place. Because I think our, you know, for the good of the game is why we exist. And uh, the players want that too. And it, that's a pretty, pretty great, uh, combination if we can uh, if we can uh, continue down that road together absolutely I, I'm, I'm so glad you went through all that because i remember when you you know created the position that jason first occupied and scott does now but you added a whole lot to that in terms of the, the player journey that that that's I, which i wasn't aware of and makes all the sense in the world um so thank you for that Let, let's go back or, or go into maybe a little bit course setups um you kind of alluded to some of the um issues in the past. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I, I mean, Shinnecock has got to be such a hard place because the wind comes in and dries out the greens. And we had Walt Driver on a while ago who harkened back to, I think the 2004 us open there, and you've alluded to the 2018 and, um, those are, those are challenges because weather has got to be one of the hardest things. I mean, you can set it up, you know, and then, Different wind comes, greens get dried out. You got to be nimble, but you know you've alluded to maybe sort of what the current philosophy is. I'd love for you to kind of sort of expound on that a little bit, and you know, kind of how you approach course setups now, and 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 because um, it's a hard challenge, and I'm sure it varies round to round, let alone site to site. It does. It's um, it is a challenge. It it unfolds in real time. You can have the best plan in the world, but there are no guarantees. Um, 71 good hole locations aren't enough. Uh, it just takes one. And, um, you know, it, 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 it just it is what it is. And I think uh, we built our strategies around uh, not just golf course setup, but more holistically our championships. And it really um, informs golf course setup. Let me let me just share that with you. Sure. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll come, you'll see where the, where the golf course setup side of it comes in, but it all ties yeah. together and it, it really involves just four pillars of a strategy that we built back in 2018. And we, we live by now, not that we didn't always have a strategy. We always have, uh, but it really, uh, it really was coalesced this way and, I, and I'm proud of it. And it starts with the first part of the first pillar is we endeavor to go to America's greatest venues, as you said it a minute, a little bit ago, the cathedrals of the game. Jason Gore coined that term. I love it. it says oh, it I didn't know that's where it came from. It's a great oh, yeah. term. That was Jason gets the patent trademark and the royalties on that one. You know, I I, I always sort of think of Cypress <laughs> Point as the Sistine Chapel, right? Yeah. So we're kind of being consistent there. But I, I will give Jason. So Sandy Tatum gets that. We'll give Jason the credit for cathedrals. Go ahead. <laughs> and, and Wingfoot Golf Club and their Stone Clubhouse may be the greatest sanctuary, one of the greatest. Yeah, ones. yeah. <laughs> uh, but I have a slide about that that I often show at talks. But the cathedrals of the game. You know why, Larry? America's greatest venues. We can do that, um, but it's it's important where, where players win their U.S. Open. 
And we yeah. got that from a guy that everybody's going to know, a guy by the name of Nick Price. Right. Former world number one, three-time major winner. In 2018, we're sitting around the championship committee table, and Nick, Nick was on our board of directors, our USJ executive committee, and on our championship committee. Nick is one of the finest human beings I've ever met. Just a super wonderful guy, thoughtful, and boy, uh, everybody knows what a great player yeah. he was. And, and he, 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 he had great reverence for the U.S. Open, and he, he just we were all talking about what the special sauce was for a U.S. Open and a U.S. Women's Open and where we should take it and why. And Nick just piped up and looked across the table at me. I was leading the discussion and he said, John, it's just important where players win their U.S. Open, men or women. And there was about this 20 or 30 second silence. <laughs> you could hear a pin drop around the room. There's about 20 people in the room. And all of a sudden the room erupted. That's right. That's that's our, that's that's that it's important the greatest venues in our country we can do it you know let's think that way and uh you know and we started to talk about why that mattered and nick nick jumped in you know the ghosts of the past matter where hogan hit the one iron at marion or right, watson right. chipped in on 18 or nicholas hit the one iron or hogan right. tamed the monster or trevino threw the snake at nicholas's feet before the playoff right, and marion right <laughs> you can go through the list and yeah. and made uh we've made wonderful history since then, but for us to go to the cathedrals, you go to the great places, it often just takes care of golf course setup, but just by being at the game's greatest places, they're just the cathedrals. The second part of our strategy is openness. Uh, you know, you gotta get to our championships and we pride ourselves in our championships, you earn your way in, the values of our great country, uh, everybody's welcome, but you gotta earn your way in either by exemption or through qualifying, ultimate meritocracies is how we right. think about them. And we're proud of the fact that it doesn't matter what kind of clubs you have in your bag or the clothes on your back or the color of your skin. If you can get your ball in the hole, you can play in the U.S. Open, the U.S. Women's Open or any of those. So you can get there. You can chase that dream. Remember, I talked about inspiration. We think a lot about inspiration and really showcasing the great players and their talents and the great golf courses we go to. It's not about what we do to golf courses. It's about the great courses and the great players and what they do on the golf courses. Golf course setup is just part of what we do. Uh, it, it had become a little bit too much of the story and we right. wanted to change that. We right. wanted it to be below the line and, yeah. and just let the players and the venues shine. But we did have a document, we did develop a documented strategy that we call tough but fair. What does that mean? Very simple. We endeavor to have the players get every club in their bag dirty during a U.S. Open test, including the club between their ears. It's also <laughs> uh, mental fortitude is important. And I think a lot of people, Larry, um, have always thought of the U.S. Open and the winning score as being even par. Right. And that's always been our objective. Yeah, you know what? I think there were a lot of years where that was the objective. And I think there were... Perhaps sometimes, uh, I don't think in recent years, but I think over the years, uh, that golf courses would prepare, change their architecture, change yeah. fairway lines. Uh, really, uh, the USA would come in and set the golf course up where, you know, even par was probably the goal. And um, but I can tell you, I can tell you today that it is not the holy grail any longer. Sure, you know, if we end up there, we're fine with that. Par on every score is is something that uh, we want to try to achieve. But well, along that way, getting every club in the bag dirty, we want players, if they win the Open, to have achieved something special because it's tough. 
And right. what, I, what is the toughness? Well, it's tough, but fair because we want them to hit it, be able to hit it left to right and right to left and high and low. And not only just throw the ball up in the air and have it land on a soft green, but be able to control it once it hits the ground. Right. Firm and fast conditions are really where the cream rises to the top. You talk to the great players, we get in the open. Uh, when are you going to firm up the greens? When is it going to get bouncier? And uh, they want to see right. that because they can control their golf ball, not right. only in the air, but when it hits the ground. And they're great short games that, that happen along those lines as well. And I think the other thing that we really endeavor to do is uh, stay with the intent of the architect. Yeah. So, uh, for us to come in and put a cookie cutter U.S. Open setup is, is just not fair to what the architects intended. You go back and look at YouTube or some of the film in, in 1986 or 1995 or 2004 of Shinnecock Hills. And that's what I'll call out because, boy, am I looking forward to 2026 at Shinnecock, <laughs> exercising some of those demons. There are no guarantees, but I, I am looking forward to that one. I bet. <laughs> but uh, you look at Shinnecock, and I'll go to the eighth hole. Look at the eighth hole in a, in a bacon strip fairway, and you look 30 yards left of that fairway on number eight, Short par four, little dog leg right with a marvelous putting green. And you'll see a bunker complex 30 yards, 20 yards in the rough. And we had narrowed that fairway up or we had changed the architecture. Now yeah. that fairway in, in, in 2018 was the widest fairway in U.S. Open history at about 65 yards wide. But I'm here to tell you, if you hit it in the right side of that fairway in 2018 and the whole locations were on the right side of that putting green, you couldn't get it within 40 feet of the hole. You had to be on the left side of that fairway. So, you know, I think a lot of people these days, and you heard a little bit of this narrative at Los Angeles Country Club, get caught up in the width of fairways instead yeah. of the angles that you have to play into in some of these putting greens because we stay with the intent of the architect. And I think that's something that I'm proud of. Tillinghast and Ross and Flynn and all of those great ones, they had an intention behind what they do and the angles that they created. And uh, how dare us come in and change that? Sure, we come in and narrow. But uh, I'm proud that we stay with the intent of the architect and showcasing great venues and the talent of these great players. So that's tough but fair. That's number three. And then player focus. I've already talked about it. Right. Focusing on the players. What do they think? Yeah, we ask them what they think of our setups. We survey them. We ask them uh, the week of the championship. How does it feel out there? What are you, what are you sensing? Uh, we don't uh, set up a golf course by group think, but, um, but we listen. And we also seek input. We seek input from players. I remember at Pebble Beach, you mentioned in 2019, it was an important U.S. Open. There was one guy that I'd known over the years that knew Pebble Beach perhaps better than anybody else, a guy by the name of Casey Boynes. You know that name. He's a two-time California amateur champion, uh, won dozens of, uh, of California championships yep. in Cal, Southern Cal events, but he's also a 35-year caddy at Pebble Beach. And uh, Pebble Beach had had uh, redone five of their putting greens okay. a couple of years before the Open. And Casey had caddied on them, along with some of these other, uh, along with all the other greens, uh, knew them like the back of his hand. Why would we not seek his input? Sure. He gave us a couple of nuggets that made us better. I could tell you stories about that. But that's part of what we do, too. We, we listen to players, not just tour players, but um, we seek input from as many as we can. Caddies who are good players. I could tell you other stories, but it really is more about the player relationship year round, listening to their perspectives, asking what they think, and then explaining our decisions. And I think we've gotten to a good place. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's great. And, um, you know, I, I, one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't sort of highlight for folks, you know, when we talk about the cathedrals of the game, I, I think it's so impressive and noteworthy that you guys um, seem to have put a particular focus on the U.S. Women's Open roster. Um, we had Allison Corpuz on um, a couple of months ago. I've had Amy Alcott on going back further, of course, you know, connect with Riviera where you're um, coming, uh, I guess, in 26, I think, for the U.S. Women's Open. But um, uh, the um, it, you look at the roster for the next 10 years of the U.S. <laughs> Women's Open. I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but I think Chicago golf's on there. I mean, some real, real cathedrals of the game. And that wasn't always the case for the U.S. Women's Open. And you guys have also significantly increase the purse. I'm sure that was all very deliberate and intentional, but, you know, kudos to you guys for doing it because, um, you know, I think the women's game is in a very exciting place these days, an awful lot of talent. Of course, you know, I'm, 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 I root for the Stanford Cardinals. We've got Roseang out there now. And, um, but it's great to see the U S women's open achieve that stature. Well, thank you for that, uh, Larry. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it goes back to some of those discussions we had about what our object, objectives were in building our championship strategies. America's greatest venues, not just for the U.S. Open. Remember, Nick said men or women. And I think, right. you know, you, that goes back, that's rooted back um, in the history of, of the USGA for the good of the game. You know, there's been a lot of great, um, great things happen around the women's game of late, and it's continuing to happen. You know, I think um, the Augusta National Women's Amateur, yeah, and, uh, that absolutely. Fred Ridley shared with us, it's uh, going to create that event. We all at the USGA applauded him. I remember that when that happened a few years ago, and he shared that ahead of the announcement and looked for our support. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm a proud member of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews. I sat in the Scores Hotel when that vote was taken and raised my hand very positively uh, when women uh, yeah. were admitted into the club. And I could go on and on all the great competitions that uh, are being stood up. And, you know, I'm really proud that I can say as with the USGA, um, we too have been about the game uh, since day one. You think about our history. We were founded on December 22nd, 1894. And the next year, the very first USGA championship, the US Amateur, our oldest, our original was played. Uh, in in, um, in 1895, uh, in that spring. And uh, the next day as an afterthought was uh, the U.S. Open. Think about that, an afterthought. After yeah, an afterthought. The amateur was the big one. And then a few who weeks knew? Later, Horace Rollins, who knew? He Horace was Rollins. Yeah. <laughs> Horace Rollins um, won that championship. And if you ask Tom Watson, he knows every name on that trophy. His I dad bet he does. Him. <laughs> encourage him to memorize them uh, and he knows them ask him uh, who won number two and number three he'll know it yeah, but, he'll tell uh, us the willie anderson streak right. he'll tell us them all <laughs> yeah tom tom's a big fan of the u.s open and we're yeah, big he fan sure of is I, I, but i think the point is a few weeks after that u.s amateur and u.s open was the u.s women's amateur and uh and then um you know it, it it's the usj has been about the game all of it men and women uh, everybody together uh, since day one. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud to stand behind that. It, it's part of our foundation. It's part of what we think about. You know, we're, the U.S. Women's Open is the oldest women's major. Um, yeah. 
we uh, we didn't start it, but we we embraced it and, and carried it forward. And yeah, I think that 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 uh, list of sites that you see that came out of our discussions in 2018. There were voices um, over the years that have said, "Oh, we can't go to those big markets for the Women's Open. We can never compete with Major League Baseball or or uh, or um, or other major sporting events in those in in those towns or." Or boy, we can't go to that site. That's just too hard for the women. They'll never be able to, they'll be embarrassed. Well, I just thought any of that sort of thinking was nonsense. Right. And uh, I have a daughter and and uh, I, I, you know, it was important to me what we did. And I think as we went out and built that list, um, you know, I think about growing up and, and being that little boy and had that little putt every night uh, to win the US Open on that final green. Um, there are millions of little girls and little boys Absolutely. who and Corpus at Pebble Beach and we're yeah. inspired. And we'll, 10 years from now, we'll see them on tour and they'll talk about that. Just like many of us were inspired by Jack Nicholas winning it um, at Baltusrol in 1980. Both Mike Davis and I compare notes on that. We were both inspired by that. That's what happens. That's yeah. the inspiration. And it, it shouldn't be reserved just for the men. And doggone it, the women can play at Oakmont or Marion or Oakland Hills or Pebble Beach, every bit as good as the men. And they're going to make their own history at those places. And that's the one thing our player relations capability gave to us, that the women want to win at the greatest venues in our in our country. Absolutely. Like do. And so we've given it to them. And uh, I'm proud of that. And I think uh, it's with all of our championships, not just the Opens. And, you know, I think we get needled a lot about uh, a little bit about how far out we go. But there's a strategy behind that, too. But yeah, let's that, talk about it. I'm glad you mentioned that. So this the anchor sites that maybe you can talk a little about that because you do uh, you are sort of um, committed. Uh, I mean, I don't have it at my fingertips, but well into the future, you know, particularly the U.S. Open. Um, I'd love to hear kind of the thinking behind that. I'm glad you mentioned it. <laughs> Well, you're my sweet spot, I think. Now, I love talking about these things, much like I love talking about history. And I've had a little too much Starbucks coffee in me this morning. So <laughs> no, this is great. <laughs> it, uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it concise. But, it, you know, I, again, I go back to those strategic approaches in 2018, the four pillars, and really the venues was such a big part of that. But, you know, I, just looking at... Uh, the future and thinking about making the U.S. Open and the U.S. Women's Open and even our amateur championships the best they can be, all of our Opens and amateurs, um, what will allow that to happen? And I think the way we thought about it was, well, you know, what if we looked at some sites that if we went back to more frequently, you know, Pinehurst and Pebble Beach and Oakmont, uh, three sites that, um, you know, if we went back to them more frequently, took a U.S. Open every five to seven years, and they knew we were coming back, what could we do? Uh, what could we invest in, uh, both in infrastructure? What would the what would those venues invest in? Heck, if this if this if if a state like North Carolina who puts golf as the number one component of their strategy for attracting tourists uh, knew that we were bringing five U.S. Opens to Pinehurst and an economic impact of over two and a half billion dollars with a B, uh, what could that lead to? How would they look to invest in future U.S. Opens and the economic driver uh, that that could mean for their state? And they did. And now you'll see us open Golf House Pinehurst in 2013 right. and a new home for the World Golf Hall of Fame. Right. And all that we do that's good for the game and a million and a half visitors that visit Pinehurst will go through that. But it is about uh, thinking about 
keeping uh, the U.S. Open viable and accessible, property acquisition or um, just things that happen on the golf course uh, that we can build out uh, for fan experiences and technology. What can we put under the ground with with uh, with fiber optics and electricity and water lines? What can what can we do with fan corridors to make their experience better and viewing better? What can we do with um, uh, with everything within the community that, um, you know, from a public safety standpoint that uh, can make it better. We know the market better. The players will be more familiar with those uh, golf courses. The viewers on television will know, they all know 17 and 18 at Pebble Beach, but they're going to know, they're going to know uh, those holes and, and at, right. at places like Pinehurst and Oakmont and Marion right. and Oakland Hills much more so than they have in the past. And they're going to become right. more familiar and there's going to be more anticipation. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, you know, it, it also puts our stake in the ground as to where we're going and, uh, and we can really think ahead and think more than two or three years out. We can think eight or 10 or 15 years out and, uh, and really supercharge our championships. And by the way, you look at all those venues, they're not just hosting open championships. No, but oh, right. They're hosting, uh, U.S. juniors and U.S. amateurs and yeah. and more and creating a foundation for that player journey and you saw it happen at the Country Club two years ago when Matt Fitzpatrick won the U.S. Amateur in 2013 and then he was able to win the U.S. Open in 2022. That's the ultimate player journey. Yeah, you know? it sure is. Francis we met said to play the Country Club well, it takes a lot of knowing. Yeah. Well, Matthew Fitzpatrick got a lot of that knowing in 2013, and he used he it. He sure did. I think you'll see more of that as we go forward. But it's it's surely thinking about the long term, making the investments, creating the familiarity for fans and players and for the market. And by the way, Larry, for our golf course setup, we're going to know Pebble Beach better in 2027 for the U.S. Open because of what happened in 2023 at the U.S. Women's Open. It's that simple. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, and thank you for explaining that. So let me kind of um, get you out of here on on what is not a small topic, but, you know, kind of pivoting towards looking towards the future. You guys, I know, pride yourselves justifiably so on being a forward looking organization for the good of the game, not just today, the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Um I'm going to sort of lay a few things out here. I'll let you tackle them in any fashion you want. But um, I'm sort of, as a general matter, curious about sort of what you see as the challenges and opportunities. But I'm going to put one in particular on the table for you, um, which I know you guys grapple with, um, which is distance. Um, and, um, and, and I was thinking about it in particular when you were going through the architecture points on respecting the architecture um, of some of these gems. And, um, and you know, we're out here, we've got, you know, the great George Thomas triumvirate uh, with Bel Air and LACC and Riviera, and you're so thrilled you're going back to Riviera. Um, and, and you know, talk about angles, boy, that 10th hole, nothing has better angles than that. <laughs> but, right. but, but, you know, just kind of how you sort of and distance obviously is is not just for you know your major tournaments, but you know it's a it's a general topic. But I'm how do you sort of grapple with that? Because that certainly affects the architecture, right? And there's a lot of other aspects to distance, right? You know, environmental stuff, the amount of land it takes to keep building bigger courses and everything. But 
Uh, it's not, it's a tough nut to crack. I know it's a hard issue and just sort of um, that one in particular, I'm curious kind of how you think about it and how you're grappling with it. Well, it's a great, it's a great question. It's, it's a question that's on a lot of people's uh, minds currently. I, th I don't think it's any secret that um, we've been going through this process with our Distance Insights project for the last six years, but really the journey started many years ago. It's been a continuous journey. You know, the USJ has has been a governing body um, since our inception. It's part of why we were founded along with conducting national championships and partnering right. with the UNA is a great honor. I, I lived that world for many years. Um, and actually the distance journey under our Distance Inside project I was part of in 2017 when it really kicked off. So, but I've handed that off and, but I stay close to it as part of the senior team at the USJ. And I, you know, I th the way that I think about it, it goes back you know, 20 plus years when the USA and the RNA announced the joint statement of principles that if distance continues to increase, we would act. And it it, it really wasn't centered around the golf ball or the golf club. It was uh, around things, any factor that would impact uh, distance increases that we saw as maybe detrimental to the, to the game. And when I say the game, I, I mean the economic sustainability, the enjoyment of the game, um, and, and, and I'll come back to that, but I, I, I think it, it, it's been a long journey. And I think, I think uh, a bit of a thoughtful journey, I'd say, um, as well. I think we think about it, and it's an important conversation. We've been engaged in it a long time. Some might say too long. But I do think that um, it's been a thoughtful process that we've undertaken the last six years. We've engaged every single stakeholder uh, imaginable. I think I know uh, there were, I think, 19 of them that we identified, everything from wow. to player to manufacturers wow. to yeah. just a recreational player, who's perhaps the most important part of this, because uh, that's the majority of golfers, but everybody, college golfers and amateur golfers. And anyway, um, we're proud of that. We've been transparent. We've been transparent with everybody about what we've been thinking, what we've been talking about. We've sought a lot of input and uh, and uh, gone through our process of announcing what we're thinking about through our through our notice and, and comment period and and we've come through that I think uh, we've come through the latest phase of that um, uh, and I think uh, I think we'll speak uh, you know soon I don't know the exact time of that uh, at the moment but it's it's coming closer about what our next steps are and that's a that's a work in progress uh, I do know one thing that I think um, and I think it, it, some of our leadership has said it, uh, uh, both the USJ and the RNA, that at this point in time, doing nothing is 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 just not an option. And and I and I'll and I'll I'll, I'll say really the way that we think about that is, yeah, there there are there are folks that will say, gosh, you know, don't 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 do that, don't don't do anything <laughs> with 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 the golf ball or the golf club. The game has never been stronger coming out of the pandemic and more people are playing and the tours have never been stronger. Yeah, we, we, we get that. But, you know, Larry, I think in our history, um, it really is, we think, our responsibility, if not our obligation, that the game remains strong, not just now, but not just for our kids or even their kids, but their kids, kids and grandkids. And so that the game that we all love and enjoy now remains largely the game uh, 25, 50, 100 years from now. 
That's the way the USGA and our partners, the RNA think, the long term. And <clears throat> I think we feel an obligation uh, to that, whatever that means, whatever is going to come from that. And um, I think we feel good about the process. We feel good about that long-term vision. You know what? I think whatever we do, whether it's nothing or it's taking some action, we're not going to make everybody happy. Yeah. That's governance. That's, and, that's right. <laughs> you know, governance isn't easy. If it were, everybody would be doing it, but they're not. Um, we are. And I think we're proud of the data that we've collected and that we've looked at. And I, I look at it from a championship standpoint and, and, you know, I, I don't look at it from sure. There are golf courses that we've taken the U S open to over the years, some many years ago that we can't anymore. They're just not long enough. Um, because and people will say, well, sure you can just narrow up those fairways to, to 22 yards and, and guys will back off and gals will back off. And well, I don't want the U S open or the U S women's open to be a test of golf, anything less than it always has been. I don't want right. guys and gals hitting four and five irons off the tee. I want right. driver in their hands. Absolutely. And that's, that's part, part of, that's part of the test. That's an important part of the test. It's part of the examination. It's part of what makes a U.S. open champions, what Bob Jones did and Ben Hogan and, yeah. And, and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and Rory McElroy and all those great champions. And it needs to continue to be that way. So just narrowing up, yeah, that's part of it, but it's more than that. And, 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 and I think it, it, it's at that point in time where we have to look at the long term and have to, and have to have some courage and, and uh, do what we think is best for the game. And it's not about what U.S. Open setup should be. Uh, we can always adjust at, at 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 venues, but it really is about the economic sustainability and enjoyment in the long term. Uh, you know, as the game, if, if we have to keep buying land, which may not be available, right. and not just lengthening, but widening, right. because of hitting distances, not everybody hits it straight. <laughs> so you have legal liability, and you have tax issues, and you have absolutely. Interview. You know, government regulation is not going to ease up in the future. Water no. is going to continue to be an issue. You know that well. Well, well I was going to say, no one, you're, all the things you're taking off now are not true anywhere more than they are where I'm sitting in Southern California, for sure. That's right. That's right. And so it's really not a championship issue. It's part of it. It's more of an economic uh, sustainability issue and an enjoyment issue. Uh, yeah, we could let... Um, we could let uh, innovation be unbridled and you'd see uh, self, it already exists. You'd see self-correcting golf balls and hitting distances that we could never imagine and spin rates and different things that um, that manufacturers uh, create. And we don't want to stifle the game. We want it to evolve and innovate, uh, but we want to do it in a way that um, that society can wrap its arms around and, and 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 players can wrap their arms around and continue to enjoy golf as it has been for for hundreds of years. So I, I think we look at it that way, the long-term, the long-term economic um, sustainability, environmental sustainability, uh, the enjoyment of the game. And um, again, we want to make everybody happy, whether we do nothing or we do something, but uh, uh, we will uh, soon speak to it and, um, and we'll get on that journey too. Well, that's what leadership is about. Um, you never make everyone happy, that's for sure. But um, you wouldn't be a leader if you if that's all your goal was. So um, um, let me just ask you one final thing, putting distance aside, because you are such a forward-looking organization. What do you sort of see 
you know, as the challenges generally going forward to keep growing the game? I mean, I know you guys think about this a lot. We've come out of COVID, you know, golf was the quintessentially socially distanced sport. Um, we all, I mean, I know at the club I'm at here, all the clubs, you know, record numbers of rounds. It's receded a little bit, but we've got so many people that now got interested in the game. And I would throw another component on the table on this topic, you know, the top golfs of the world. You know, there's other entry points for people at least getting a club in their hand, if not on the course. So there's a lot of potential there and um uh but how do you sort of see us sort of you know what are the challenges to keep growing the game as you guys as i say i think you guys are the quintessentially forward-looking organization so i'm just curious uh what your thoughts are on that it's a good question larry thank you for it and uh we talk about it a lot and there's no easy answer but there are a couple of, of, of thoughts that that i would offer one is access um, and the other word that I'd use would be welcoming. Uh, access first, you know, through the pandemic, yeah, the game's never been stronger, uh, but our golf courses are full. Yeah. And uh, it can be tough for young people or people without the means to to, uh, to afford to be able to play, let alone afford a set of clubs or afford lessons to get better. Um, and so I think that's something we think a lot about. How can we make the game more accessible? You know, we can bring a lot of people to the game and you look at stats and, and uh, you know, whether it's the National Golf Foundation or or all the initiatives out there, the PGA of America is a lot of the data. So do we, um, different entities. There are many people that come to the game, but just about as many that leave each year. Mm -hmm. And that's changing a little bit more of come and state in recent years, a pandemic, who who to thunk that a pandemic would create right. some of that. But now our right. challenge is to keep them. Right. And, you know, I think access is, is a big part of that, not just, um, you know, giving people a place to play and enjoy the game and enjoy all that, that you and I and others have enjoyed with the camaraderie, the outdoors, yeah. the exercise. But if they can't get on a golf course, you know, that's a problem. And here again, it gets to uh, if, if golf courses aren't preserved and, and, uh, and, and, you know, I'd like to see more of them. Uh, then that access is going to go away and so will players. And, you know, it, I think you also think about it if uh, uh, the uh, what, what that product is, if they come and, and pay an exorbitant green fee and are out there for six hours and play on yep. putting greens that are bumpy and, yeah. and, and uh, you can't grow grass on, that's not a recipe for success either. So right. they have the foundational aspects of it. And, and that's where the economic sustainability comes in. Golf courses have to, have to be economically sustainable. But I think the bigger one is that we need to be inspiring and welcoming, particularly the communities that have not been able to experience our great game. Yeah. You know, I think that's one thing that I'm very proud of. One thing that's under my purview, and I have the great privilege of working with a team led by Heather Daly Donna Frio that we brought in to create our U.S. National Development Program. Yes. Yeah. Uh, to, to bring young players, uh, to keep young players in the game and really identify young talent and uh, really create more American made stars. You know, yeah. you, you, it's something that, again, uh, um, I've thought about over the years and it just wasn't the right time. But I'll tell you what, I I take my cap off and I just I just push him out there to speak about it every chance that he can get Mike Wan, our CEO. Yeah. Uh, he's such a charismatic guy and, he and uh, he's really wrapped his arms around 
our U.S. National Development Program and championed it. It was one of the first things that we spoke about when he started, and and uh, he put it under my bailiwick and Heather's to create from the ground up. We have, um, and now some of the young talent that's out there that um, comes and enjoys golf, maybe in a summer camp or a or a junior golf program, but either can't afford it or can't get access to a golf course. Um, or can't get lessons to get better. You know, these great athletes that come in and, and want to continue to play, there are these barriers and, and they don't get the help they need to take, go to the next level. Uh, we're going to eliminate that. And so these kids that go on and, and will leave and go play soccer or basketball or baseball or run track, uh, we're going to keep more of them in golf. And that's just another thing we're seeing with the distance question, more great athletes are staying in our game. You know, the money, it's no secret. The money's gotten bigger and right. like in sport, when the money's big, the good athletes will stay in, right. in, in sports. You know, I have a son who was a college baseball player. He's five foot 11. He was a lefty pitcher, could throw it pretty hard, upper eighties, mid to upper eighties. But, you know, his size always worked against him. And, you know, you look at major league baseball and I remember I, I'm old enough to remember when Goose Gossage was mowing players down for the Yankees with 95 on our fastball, you look at major league baseball today, everybody's six foot eight, six foot nine coming in to leave on that mound. And they're all throwing 99, hundred. Right. Golf is going in that same direction. The better athletes are coming to our game. They're staying in our game and hitting distances are changing because of that too. That's a good thing. And it's the same thing. I look at when I played college golf at BYU, most all of our team was from the U S uh, you look at college programs now and it's flipped about 40% of it is from overseas. And that's a good thing. The game's growing yeah, globally. It is. And that's a great thing for our game. We want to encourage that. But the U.S., the USA is the only developed golf country in the world that doesn't have a development program uh, to really nurture its finest players and its finest talent. Well, we've changed that. The USJs wrap its arms around it. And we're going to keep those great athletes in our sport. And you're going to see more heroes uh, go on to be uh, U.S. Open Masters, PGA of America, and British Open champions and tour winners, both on the LPGA Tour and the L and the uh, PGA Tour. And we're, we're going to be proud of that. It's a 10-year journey, 15-year journey, who knows? Uh, but I think one thing we're going to do is have a grant program for those kids who don't have the resources uh, to get the right clubs fitted or the right instruction. We're going to eliminate those barriers for those kids that have special talent and keep them in the game and keep them on an upward trajectory. And really, Larry, all of all of the components have existed, whether it's it's the Allied Golf Associations with their development programs. You know, I stayed at home and played in a Washington State Junior. Kids go on the road now and play all over the country. I know. <laughs> Freddie Couples and I stayed home and played in Washington Junior Golf. Uh, the kids don't do much of that anymore. We're going to change that. We're going to have state programs and elevate them within uh, our AGAs. And then they'll graduate into the American Junior Golf Association more than ever have before. And then college golf and the Elite Amateur Golf Series and um, and into USJ Championships. And we'll lose, use our collective exemptions for those kids and and we'll provide them. It won't be, it'll be an incentive-based program where the kids that really want it will have the tools now and and the competitions and the wherewithal to uh, really propel them into doing great things. And I think as we look five, 10, 15 years from now, we'll see more Jordan Spieths and Justin Thomases and Dustin Johnsons in our game. And we think that's good uh, uh, for not only all of us in the USA, but for golf worldwide. So it'll grow all over. And, you know, last piece of that, you look at uh, the Olympics in golf. Yeah. And you look at countries like China 
and um, and all these nations that now uh, are pouring money into golf because they're Olympic sports and and through their Olympic programs, you have you have uh, countries like Sweden and um, and China and Korea that you know maybe don't have uh, China does, but you know Sweden, uh, a behemoth in the golf world. Behemoth, uh, absolutely. Yeah, a Scandinavian country who yeah, produces some of the greatest players in the world. All right, it's from... a great development program, and we're excited right. about uh, what we're going to be able to do in that regard too. That's exciting, um, and um, I know Mike Kelly out here is involved a little bit with you guys on that national team, and I know he's excited about it, and and I think that. That's great. John, you've been so generous with your time. I could talk to you all day. Can I offer one more thing, Larry? Yeah, please. Please. Yeah. Let me mention it because it's one of the things that, and again, I I don't mean to ramble on, but there's- No, no, this is great. We haven't talked about. Then when I talk about welcoming, and I intended to, you know, welcoming to our game, and it is around a new championship that we created two years ago, our U.S. Adaptive. adaptive, Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is one of the most inspiring things to see that. Yeah. Please go ahead. Talk about that because it's awesome. No, I'm glad you I'm glad. uh, Thank you for the opportunity, because I I really try to uh, tout that championship um, whenever I'm given the opportunity to speak. And thank you for that. It has been such a joy. I've never seen uh, a more joyous championship uh, that I've been around uh, in my career than was our inaugural and now our second U.S. Adaptive Open at Pinehurst the last two years. You know, these are folks and, you know, we've, we've looked at the numbers and we think in our country alone, you know, there are, oh, I, I won't try to quote the numbers, it's been a while, but there are millions of disabled uh, individuals in our country and we think about 10% of them play golf, four and a half, five million of them, uh, so to speak. We think that's about the number and we think that's conservative. And, you know, these folks want nothing more than just to be part of the golf community. Uh, they they just want to be welcomed. And they um, the stories that come out around uh, some of these heroes, I've seen it. I grew up in a place in Lakewood, Washington, that has a golf course, the American Lake Veterans Hospital, where my mother was a registered nurse. Oh, wow. And uh, I played that little golf course, a uh, little nine-hole golf course growing up as, as uh, part of our junior high uh, rotation. And I'd go out and play, and I played with, with veterans and wounded warriors. And I remember being out there, uh, there was a tour player years ago, Ryder Cover, Kenny Still, who was on the board. And... Yeah. was president of the American Lake Veterans, or at least on the board, and would, would try to raise funds for veterans to come out and play, whether they're uh, in a seated device or on a cane or a crutch or or had an intellectual disability. It was a great joy for Ken and, and others on that board. I literally, Larry, a place my mom worked and I played growing up, saw veterans come out of their hospital bed after mm-hmm. an amputee from Iraq or Afghanistan and be on suicide watch and be stood up to hit the first golf ball in their life into a net in that little inside facility and then go out on the golf course and it's changed their lives. It's been life changing. And to carry that forward with this new national championship and give this community a new national championship and now to see it sprout up like places under Mike Kelly. Yeah. I was going to say we're following your lead here in the SCGA. Exactly. They are. And, and the Georgia state golf association, metropolitan and Florida and, and so many others around the country. 
and welcoming this aspect of golfers. That's all. They just want to be golfers like the rest right. of us right. <laughs> and be given the opportunity to have a national championship to chase that dream. And we've, we've, we've given them that and it will inspire more competition, more within the uh, adaptive community to play. And we're really proud of that. And, and we really uh, look forward to that unfolding again, our championships, whether it's an open or an amateur, they're inspirational. And that's what we do for the good of the game. And that, championship the u.s adaptive open may be the best example of that that we have well said i'm really glad you 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 mentioned that because yeah i had the same reaction watching it as i and as i say you know be here at the scga we're following your lead and we're all very excited about it um so thank you very much for mentioning that and and john thank you for all for all you guys do for the game and and for your generosity of time today this has been terrific chatting with you as i knew it would be and um you know, I know you guys are, um, you know, obviously you're out here this year for both the U.S. Open, of course, at LACC and the um, women's amateur at Bel Air, which I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed that week. That was just phenomenal walking Bel Air with all those great, great players. And you're coming back to El Cab next summer for the um, juniors. I mentioned Riviera in 26. You're going to have the U.S. Open Riviera, the men's U.S. Open, what? 2031, I think. I mean, you're you're out here uh, a bunch, which we're very excited about. We love when you guys come out and uh, to help you do these things. And uh, I'll look forward for you uh, guys coming out next summer if uh, if our paths don't cross before then. But thank you again. Really appreciate it. Larry, thank you for saying that. We love the West Coast. I'm a West Coast guy. You know yeah. that. And yeah. I, uh, <laughs> but I, let, me, let me say this. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for giving us the uh, those of us in the game, particularly those of us with the USA to speak to our great game and all that is good with it. You know, I'll just finally say in closing that I'm really proud to be a part of the USJ now. Mike Wan, Fred Perpal as our president, Kevin Hammer, whom I've known you've uh, yeah. also had on to give a voice to our championships. I think it's a great time to be at the USJ. You know, we're not always going to get it right. We're going to make mistakes. We're only human. Um, there are no guarantees in anything, um, but I'm really proud of the discussions that I'm part of with our leadership team on staff. I'm really proud of our leadership on our executive committee. There are a lot of good people that care first and foremost, not about themselves, but about our great game. And I think that we're the object objective body that really can do things um, for the good of the game, truly the good of the game. And that's all we're trying to do. And uh, really hope folks recognize that. Again, we won't always get it right, but we hope folks will jump on our bandwagon and help us with our mission. And uh, you're doing that today. So thanks for having me on. My pleasure, John. Thank you so much.